welcome to Walk in the Shadows with me, your host, Tim Woolworth. In this episode, number five of the second series of our podcast, we will wrap up our exploration of psychic detective work. By now, if you've listened to the other episodes, you've heard an abundance of cases where psychic detectives have solved crimes in addition to locating both missing objects and persons. We've seen how some psychics can see future crimes, or even the exact dates where tragic events will happen. It is truly stunning how these gifted individuals can dip into a pool of sigh to see things in the past, present, or future. We have also touched upon how law enforcement agencies approach working with psychic detectives. The resistance to working with psychic detectives seems to be fading slowly, but there is still a pronounced stigma in calling in a psychic detective to help solve crimes. In wrapping up this series, we are going to explore a case file from arguably the world's most prolific and successful psychic detective. But first, we'll examine the qualities of a psychic detective and the steps that one modern psychic takes prior to doing detective work to ensure that he is focused and achieves the best possible results. If the following content intrigues you and you need to hear more, there are bonus episodes in this series for our Patreon subscribers to listen to at their leisure. With all topics we cover, the Walk in the Shadows bonus episodes expand upon the concepts covered in each season. For access to our bonus episodes and several other perks including free merchandise, please visit our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. If I may have one more ask before we get to the good stuff, like and subscribe to our podcast. If you really vibe with what we're doing, please leave a review and tell a friend or two. It really does help. And now, we'll wrap up our exploration of the evolving mystery that is Psychic Detective Work. From what we've learned, to be a psychic detective, one needs to have psychic abilities first and foremost. A big question in the world of Psy is why some people have innate psychic abilities that are exceptionally accurate at times, and others are born with seemingly no abilities whatsoever. The natural follow-up question is if psychic ability is reserved for a select few who are born lucky, or can it be learned? If you recall, Beverly Yeagers began her journey into becoming one of the most influential psychic detectives in American history by simply reading about ESP. We've also touched upon how the CIA was able to train people to harness their psi abilities to perform remote viewing for government agencies and the military. There are several other renowned psychics that have said ESP is a skill that can be learned. And I bet if you look around, you can probably find someone in your local area who claims that they can teach you ESP, or at the very least, enhance your innate abilities. Provided you have the requisite ESP to be a psychic detective, there are some other facets that need to be considered before jumping into the psychic detective pool. Like any normal detective, curiosity is very important. An inquisitive mind is necessary to unearth clues about a case if one is to have any hopes of solving it. As a psychic detective, that curiosity keeps the search going with the goal of bringing closure to a case. The psychic detective needs physical stamina. Sometimes a psychic needs to go into the field to help officers locate a person. The trek can be rigorous and a physical strain on the body, such as we saw in Episode 1, where Leanna Adams 
trekked with the family into the outback to locate Thomas Brown. Because there is so much pressure on the psychic, mental stamina is needed as well to combat the stress that naturally accompanies the work that psychics perform. There is pressure from families and law enforcement agencies to be accurate. More importantly, if a psychic views or feels what a victim experiences, it can be exceptionally harrowing for the psyche. I cannot imagine the mental fatigue and emotional assaults that manifest after several cases, or as we've seen with some of the psychic detectives we've profiled, thousands of cases. Not everybody can shine in a field where they work alone. A psychic detective is responsible for answers that only they can provide in a case. A psychic typically works alone, in a room or at a location. They are not out in the field searching for clues alongside police detectives. That being said, the psychic detective must be able to interact with law enforcement officers. In doing so, as we've already mentioned in a previous episode, the psychic detective may face derision and vehement skepticism. Even in the face of adversity, the psychic detective must be able to still work professionally, listen well, and thank the detectives for their time and consideration. The psychic detective will have to work with families from time to time. They will be in a fragile state if one of their loved ones is missing or deceased. The psychic will need to be able to work solemnly and supportively with families, even in the face of duress. The psychic must be willing to provide information to authorities and possible impressions based upon that information. It isn't the job of the psychic to put together the case or solve it. The psychic is there to be used as a valuable tool to provide additional clues to help police detectives solve a case. Nothing more. The psychic is not there to second-guess an investigation. The psychic cannot be pushy with the information they provide in order to make sure that they are someone the police will continue to work with. A psychic detective must also be able to see everything through and handle stress. They are providing a service that can be heavy on the mind and soul. The important thing is to have tenacity. If possible, they should report all information that comes through to the detectives that they're working with, and it is fine to drop a case when they feel that they cannot provide any additional information. It is okay to reject cases for any reason when approached. Finally, the psychic needs to be aware that self-doubt can sabotage results. There will be emotional challenges that arise from working with law enforcement, families, and possibly even friends and loved ones found in a psychic's inner circle. No psychic is 100% accurate. There will be days where the information is not correct. The psychic needs to focus on the positive and remember those results that have solved cases and eased the suffering of individuals. These are the cases that show the psychic detective is worthy and can provide valuable information. And most importantly, that they're doing good work. With all these things in mind, after this short break, we will look into the process of preparing for a psychic session. The following methodology is credited to Dan Baldwin a pendulum dowser who is a successful psychic detective. He is part of a psychic rapid response team that endeavors to find missing individuals and has worked on high-profile cases like the J.C. Lee Dugard kidnapping. Before we get too deep into the weeds with one technique, 
Baldwin notes that every psychic detective develops their own processes. This is his process, and when talking with other psychic detectives, many of these processes seem to be fairly consistent among detectives who are successful. Baldwin also states that these steps are a good way for a beginning psychic detective to develop their skills. Because this is a long list, there is an article on our Walk in the Shadows website that includes all of these steps for your easy reference. Step 1. Find the right time and place. Remember in Episode 3 where Nancy Myers zetley gave a reading to the FBI agent about the Jonestown Massacre? She doubted that she would be able to work in a banquet hall setting with lots of people around her and thick cigarette smoke in the air. She succeeded, but she had doubts initially. According to Baldwin, peace and quiet will really help your session. Removing interruptions like cell notifications is critical to success. He says that finding your relaxation is key, so whether that is in a park with the birds chirping, or in your house with the shades drawn and a candle lit, the psychic needs to be as relaxed as possible. Step 2. Prayer Work Baldwin says that acknowledging a higher power is important. The higher power can be a traditional deity, Gaia, nature, the universe, or even the psychic's own subconscious mind. The idea is to concentrate upon a powerful, external source of energy that you can focus upon. Baldwin feels that a prayer to his higher energy source helps him keep focused and ultimately receive better information during his sessions. Step 3. Meditation Baldwin feels that meditation is key to a psychic detective's success. Most esotericists speak of meditation as the way to achieve a sense of self-knowing and devote time to meditation on a daily basis. There are several types of meditation disciplines one can learn if so inclined. The important thing is that meditation helps the psychic maintain a calm mind and body. Meditation can be upon self or a host of other things. Baldwin says that 10 minutes before a session typically works for him. He meditates upon the investigation process, the focus of the investigation, or the clues that have been found. It helps prepare the meditator for the psychic work that will follow. Step 4. Clearing oneself and setting up psychic protection. Baldwin remarks that psychic work that is performed, especially when seeking out information about tragedies, can cause negative forces to intercede upon the psychic. To prevent this, he utilizes prayer and a visualization exercise involving a ball of white light he draws positive influence from. As a paranormal investigator, I've been in some locations where I subjectively felt that there was an undefined, negative force that has interacted with me. I use this same visualization technique of drawing in white light from my local environment to push away the negativity, which I visualize in my mind's eye as dark blue or black. Granted, this is very subjective, but it seems to work for me. I am not the only one. Most every investigator seems to have a protection mechanism of sorts when called upon. Baldwin does the same thing, only he imagines himself in the center of a sphere of white light. He goes one step further to address any blockages he may have for his upcoming psychic work. He reflects to see if there are any mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, or environmental blockages he's experiencing. If so, he uses the white light and his higher power to help clear these blockages visually. He considers this as being the equivalent of limbering up before an athletic event. Step 5. State Intention A psychic must state an intention that is highly specific 
and focuses upon the investigative challenge. Baldwin points out that stating, I want to, is very different than, My intention is, when proceeding, I want, is merely stating a wish. My intention shows an actionable plan forward. He says that the psychic should think clearly about the intention, be it finding a person, a criminal, a specific clue, a motive, etc. Each intention needs to be stated in simple and targeted language. For those listeners who are practicing magicians, this should sound very familiar. Step 6. Asking the right questions. Baldwin uses a series of five distinct questions to help him focus on the detective work at hand. Can I do this? May I do this work? Should I do this work? Will I get accurate answers now? Is this work for the higher good? For Baldwin, he is asking these questions and relying upon his pendulum to divine the correct answer for him. For other psychics, these questions may be answered via a voice in their head, a vision in their mind's eye, or among other ways. He feels that the Can I do this? question is important because it lets the psychic know if they are in a state to continue that day and get accurate information. The May I do this work? question reveals whether there might be a reason not to continue with the session. Potentially, the higher self will let the psychic know what needs to be resolved before moving forward. With the Should I do this work? question, the answer may reveal that the results are something the psychic might not want. He gave an example where he received an affirmative answer of no to this question. He doused a map to locate a missing child, but there was a constant sense of nagging that he shouldn't be working the case. As a result, the child was located, but he also found out that the family was more focused upon spending the insurance money should he locate the child in a deceased state rather than rescuing the missing child and bringing her back to the family alive. The family had brought him in for all the wrong reasons, and he believes now that the child was better off with the persons that they were with when located. Baldwin's Is this for the highest good? question is a way to affirm that the psychic needs to trust their instincts. If they receive a no answer, then they should likely call off the investigation or continue with research at another time. Step 7. Keeping a Positive Attitude The situations that a psychic detective can be put in are more than many can handle. They don't have the daily exposure and training that law enforcement officers have. When there are heart-rending, dangerous, or frightening experiences, it can be a lot for a psychic detective to deal with. You may recall a few episodes ago when Nancy Myers Zetley had to back out of a vision of the houseboat sinking because she was going to see the captain die. There are cases that involve kidnappings, murders, suicides, and horrendous accidents that a psychic needs to work with. To keep a positive attitude, Baldwin recommends that the psychic always remember that they are good at what they practice and that they are doing the most good with very important work. A positive attitude is very necessary because lives can be at risk and the clues that the psychic can provide may help steer law enforcement officers towards a successful conviction. Step 8. Never assume an outcome. Any preconceived notions and expectations need to be eliminated They can color the outcome of any knowledge a psychic may gain during a session. When looking for a kidnapper, for example, it is easy to have a desired outcome. We want the happy ending, 
Psychic detectives are usually the last resort a family or police department turns to for answers, and that usually means an unhappy ending. Passing along a session to authorities that is the result of a happy wish, rather than uncolored data, will have detrimental effects on the psychic's reputation, the police, and the use of psychic detectives going forward. Step 9. Beginning the Psychic Session At this point, the psychic has done the work. They have drawn from their higher power, meditated, removed blockages, cleared the negativity, gained a proper mindset by confirming that they should do the session, framed their intent, and did not assume an outcome. The psychic can now proceed with an attempt to draw from the psychic talent that they have been blessed with. Baldwin says that several sessions may be required to ensure the information is as accurate as possible before submitting a report to the police. During this stage, the psychic may want to run audio and video recordings just to ensure all the information is obtained. Step 10. Let it go. The work is done, and the psychic detective has provided all they can to help. Disengaging with the case from there on is important. A psychic detective carries a lot of burdens, and it is critical to minimize these burdens as much as possible. And that's it. Those are Baldwin's 10 steps for a successful psychic detective plan. These steps have provided tangible results that have helped solve cases over the years. He recommends that as a psychic detective grows, that they make changes to this plan as necessary befitting their beliefs and psychic abilities. As long as any changes help them to make progress towards achieving the highest good. Those of you that are Patreon supporters, you might have listened to the second bonus episode in this series featuring the outstanding work of Gerard Croisset. For those that are not Patreon supporters, Croisset was likely the most prolific, studied, and authenticated psychic detective in the history of our paranormal world. I mentioned in the bonus content that I would cover one of his most famous cases as the wrap-up to this series. Many of you may have seen the film Mississippi Burning, starring Gene Hackman. If you are of a certain age, you may even remember when the case that the movie was based upon occurred as it helped spur societal change. It was June 21st, 1964, and the murder of three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, shocked the world and ignited social justice reform protests throughout the United States. The case became known as the Freedom Summer Murders, or the Mississippi Civil Rights Workers' Murders. Since 1890, there had been targeted disenfranchisement of the African-American vote throughout the southern United States. Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner belonged to a group called the Congress of Racial Equality, which was an affiliate of the Council of Federated Organizations. The three men had traveled to Mississippi from New York City, with the goal of registering African-American citizens to vote during the Freedom Summer campaign. The three men's last attempt to register voters was in Meridian, Mississippi, where they spoke to a congregation at the remains of a black church that had been burned by the Ku Klux Klan. 
the church had been central to the black community, and it was a fitting place to register voters in the hopes of enacting change. After their meeting, the men left town and were pulled over for speeding in Philadelphia, Mississippi. They were brought to jail and held for several hours. Upon leaving the jail, they drove off, but never reached their next destination. They wound up being abducted, brought to another location, and shot to death. Then their bodies were discarded into an earthen dam and buried. Their car was driven deep into the swamp and burned. It was just six days later, June 27th, when the author of Croisette's biography, Jack Harrison Pollock, received a phone call from someone he did not know. On the other end of the line was Milton Nelson, a successful businessman and professor at New York City College who had been a dear friend of the Schwerner family for decades. He was calling on behalf of the New York City police after his friends in the NYPD, Lieutenant Samuel Sherrod, and Captain John Cronin had suggested that Croisette might be able to provide information. At this point in time, like with most other police departments in the United States, the NYPD was very wary of psychic detectives. They reached out to Professor Nelson because a phone call from an academic might persuade Pollock to call Croisette. And by being a friend of one of the missing men, Professor Nelson was willing to help in any way he could. Because of the nature of the case, there were several officials involved. Professor Nelson said to Pollock on the phone call, that the police and FBI had turned up no clues on the missing men's locations at that point in time. He had already spoken with U.S. Representative Ogden Reed of New York, who was the congressman of the district where the Schwerner family lived. Representative Reed had agreed to forward any of Croisette's impressions to the U.S. Attorney's Office. At the time, there was a major search operation taking place over 10 counties. There were 400 sailors, 100 state troopers, and over 100 FBI agents looking for the three young men. It was the most important case in the country at the time. The missing civil rights workers caused outrage that had resulted in protests all across the country. Meanwhile, Sheriff Lawrence Rainey of Neshoba County, the county where the three civil rights workers were abducted, was on the news saying, If they're in Mississippi... They're just hiding out somewhere and trying to get a lot of publicity out of it. They've never been bothered here. After the phone call, Pollock reached out to Croisette that day, and as he had done for the biography, Pollock used a Dutch psychoanalyst living in New York City to translate the phone calls to Holland. Croisette used his supernormal abilities to look into the case. He said unequivocally, The three boys are dead. I'm sorry. But I see this clearly. He went on to say that the men's bodies would be found about 15 to 20 miles from their car in a deep, swampy place near some kind of construction. Their bodies were found almost a month and a half later, on August 4th, buried 20 feet deep in an earthen dam 21 miles from their burned station wagon, just as Croisette had predicted on June 27th. Croisette's impressions were forwarded to the FBI. They were intrigued enough to ask Pollock if he could receive any other impressions from Croisette on the case. Pollock implored Croisette via cablegrams on July 2nd and the 5th to provide any other impressions that he may have to help solve this case. 
On July 9th, Croissette responded. He said that there were several men who had plotted the crime. Of the leader, he stated that he is a member of a secret society of good social standing, the son of an owner of a big plantation, and has a war decoration. The information was promptly forwarded to the FBI. got out about Croissette's involvement, and NBC offered to fly Croissette to Mississippi to see if he could get any stronger impressions that might lead to the location of the missing men. Pollock refused to pass this along, as he feared that Croissette's life might be in danger should he step one foot in Mississippi. Instead, Professor Nelson offered to fly to Utrecht with some of Schwerner's possessions to see if any additional impressions could be obtained. On July 18th, Nelson flew to Croissette's home and spent five hours with him, and he taped the entire session, then flew home the next day. The transcript of the session was delivered to the FBI on July 21st. According to Pollock's write-up, Croissette's impressions included Location of the area where the bodies of the three missing civil rights workers could be found. Croissette's images corresponded generally, but not specifically, with where the bodies would be found 17 days later. Croissette said that the murderers at first intended to throw the bodies into a coal mine. Croissette also accurately had a strong emotion that the town of Ackerman, Mississippi, which had never been publicly mentioned in the case, was somehow involved in the crime. Perhaps the murders took place there. It is northwest of Philadelphia and 15 to 20 miles from where the victim station wagon was found. 2. A detailed pictorial description of the scene where the crime was plotted. In a tavern, in a town with an L in its name, where there are green drapes in the back, a billiard table, and where the leader might be located. In a house with remarkable wrought iron work. 3. Croissette described the leader's features. A fat man with thin, black, flattened-down hair, with large eyes, a little convex, protruding. 4. Croissette revealed that there were five men in the kidnapped car. After the FBI received this information, they were grateful. When the bodies had been found, a pathologist concluded that a blunt instrument had been used to beat James Cheney a black man, before he was shot. The FBI asked once more if Croissette could give any impressions about the instrument that was used to kill Cheney. Croissette obliged, and on August 18th, Croissette reported that Cheney was beat with a piece of rope tied to a chain like a towing cable and said that he felt that it was a hundred meters from the swampy area. Pollock's biography of Croissette was published in 1964 and the addendum on this case was added in the 1965 printing. The case was still very active, and Pollock could not release any information that might taint the upcoming trial which occurred three years later, in 1967. Two key items that he said he had to withhold from the book, but were forwarded to the FBI, was that the police were involved in the murder, and Croissette provided the make and the color of the car used by the murderers.
It was these two facts that helped the FBI close the case on Sheriff Rainey and Cecil Price on December 4th. Sheriff Rainey was involved in the conspiracy, and Cecil Price had set up the crime by unlawfully arresting the men and then informing a lynch mob about their location. The FBI announced that the murders had been planned by the Ku Klux Klan, and there were 21 men arrested in total, most of whom were Klansmen or Klan supporters. All this being said, there is no evidence that the FBI utilized the information Croissette supplied parapsychically from over 3,000 miles away. They did continually ask for more impressions, and the information supplied did match up with the information with what has since come out about the case. Publicly, the FBI said that they paid an informant to tell them where the bodies were. In the end, on October 27, 1967, Sheriff Rainey was acquitted. In addition to Cecil Price, Clan Imperial Wizard Samuel Bowers, Alton Wayne Roberts, Jimmy Snowden, Bill Wayne Posey, Horace Barnett, and Jimmy Arledge were all found guilty. Their sentences ranged from a mere three years to ten years in prison, without a single convict serving more than six years' time. The sentences were very light for three murders which may be because the Mississippi State Attorney at the time, Robert Hauberg, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yet, despite the tragedy, some good came out of the Mississippi burning murders because the public outrage surrounding the murders helped to ensure that the 1964 Civil Rights Act would pass. episode was researched and written by me, Tim Woolworth. The final audio engineering and creative soundscapes are from my fellow explorer of the unknown, Joshua Sean from Zero G, ITC. Hopefully this episode made a little bit of our paranormal world more normal for you. As always, if you have any personal anecdotes, observations, or alternate explanations you would like to share on this or any other topic we've covered, or just maybe, you would like to drop us a note to tell us about any encounter you've had with the weird. You can always reach us via our email, contact at walkintheshadows.com. Once again, that's contact, spelled C-O-N-T-A-C-T, at walkintheshadows.com. If you want to learn more about this podcast or myself, please visit our Walk in the Shadows website. The link is in the show notes. On our website, you can find the resources used for this series, our social media accounts, our mailing list, and our Patreon should you decide to support us. Your support directly helps us keep high-quality paranormal content delivered regularly to the podcast player of your choice. If you are so inclined, another way to support us is by simply subscribing and positively reviewing this podcast. And please, tell a friend or share on social media. It really does help. Most importantly, thank you for your time spent walking in the shadows with me. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you being here in this moment. Until next episode, 
May you and yours be healthy, prosperous, and treated with kindness by everyone and everything you meet, both in the light and in the shadows.